0: Hey there, and welcome to the first installment of the Padverb Podcast. I am your host, KMO. And this podcast is a service of padverb.com. Actually, it's en.padverb.com. That's a service that connects potential podcast guests with podcast hosts. It also allows you, as a listener, to follow not only your favorite podcasts, but your favorite podcast guests as they move from one podcast to another. I would highly encourage you to check it out. Again, the website is en.padverb, that's p-a-d-v-e-r-b.com. My guest in this first episode of the podcast is Vishnu Sisahai. He's a systems architect, a mathematician, and also a former indie film actor. And in addition to that, he is a martial artist, and he served as the fight choreographer in at least one film that I've seen, which we'll talk about in the recorded interview, which starts right now. Let's get into it. Hello, and Hi. welcome to the very first episode of the Padverb podcast. I'm your host, KMO, and my guest for this inaugural episode is Vishnu Sisahai. And I meant to ask you about that pronunciation before we started the that was podcast. Excellent. Well, Vishnu, it is good to talk to you. Welcome aboard. Good to talk with you. So you have a very uh, impressive background and your CV is one that I think I would have trouble just reading aloud. That's <laughs> pretty technical, but early on uh, you were involved in movies and martial arts and uh, the place where the two meet. And I used to do a podcast about zombie movies and one of the movies that you worked on is one that I've seen. It is zombie strippers.
1: <laughs> yep. That's, that's <laughs> a hilarious project. <laughs>
0: Oh, it's it's a hilarious movie. It's yeah, um... a good friend of mine
1: directed that. I remember when he was originally writing it? Um, it, was, it was supposed to be sort of a social commentary, uh, as most zombie movies are, and um, you know somehow it ended up getting warped in that weird Holly weird way into like becoming this 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 other project that starred Jenna Jameson, who was like, I think at that time probably the hottest porn star, the most certainly the most internationally renowned one. And uh, a little side story of that, is Tito Ortiz was her boyfriend at the time, mm-hmm. and that guy and was, was in- just on stand, constantly, just menacing everyone.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I think he plays a bouncer in the movie, right? Yeah, he does. He worked himself
1: yeah. a role. He worked in a role over there. Robin Eglin's in the film, too. He's mm-hmm. great.
0: What you say, most zombie films have a social commentary, but I think the social commentary of zombie strippers is very different from, say, The Walking Dead or Night of the Living Dead or, you know, traditional zombie movies like that. It's got a very strong sort of academic uh, feminist. Uh, like yeah.
1: Line. yeah, I mean, the writer of that film, uh, Jay Lee, um, I mean, he comes from some pretty profound writing pedigree. Uh, his father was one of the first Chinese Americans to really blow up as a literary writer had the pleasure of meeting his father is really, what a strange character that man was this guy was like 90 years old um and he was the most active 90 year old i've ever seen he just said weird inappropriate things and he was <laughs> uh he was like uh, a bit of a bit of a predator even at that age like you know he was a wow. strange character and both of his kids they were pretty successful in their own right one was a director the other one was a producer for montel williams and uh, he would just look at their dad like, I can't believe we came from him. <laughs> 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 but James is a very, is a very talented writer. and he continues. He's a very talented. filmmaker. All credit due to him.
0: Well, let's, let's switch gears and talk about uh, technology and your, your more recent career moves. I'm interested in cryptocurrency. And I have been talking to people about Bitcoin for about a decade. And people have been very, very excited about the blockchain and all the possibilities that it's going to open up. And I've been waiting, 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 waiting for that killer app, you know, which really affects the lives of people who are not into crypto. And it it seems like maybe the closest we've come is the NFT craze, but uh, I'll, I'll stop talking and let you take it from there.
1: I agree that the NFT craze has certainly onboarded a bunch of people that normally weren't in the space. I mean, it kind of humanized it in a way. It gave an on-ramp where everyone could understand. Look, the arts are how I actually got here. I like to liken NFTs to um, gentrification, you know, Um, where the artists move in and they make the neighborhood cool. And before you know it, everyone (laughs) else is rushing in. So they've made crypto very cool. And it's interesting because so I had made a film. I made three films that were my own, actually, four, but three feature length films. And the second one did really well like, got awards, went to all the big festivals. The third one took me forever to make. It was uh, about a computer virus that spread to humans. And uh, it required a lot of computer graphics. And I had like some pretty powerful machines at the time that I was doing editing on. It. And I was sitting there like in 2012 in a coffee shop talking with a bunch of Bitcoiners. I didn't know they were coiners at the time. I had read the white paper, but um, they were like pretty hardcore serious about using Dijkstra's algorithm to find arbitrage, you know, between different markets. And I, had, I have a computer science background, so we got of do a conversation about that. So at the end of it, I was like, you know, I'm editing this movie. Should I switch all my resources over to mining Bitcoin or should I just keep editing the movie? And they were like, oh, you should absolutely be mining Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> Then I went back into my cave and I was like, no, art first, you know, like that's, that's how I've always lived my life. So I'll prioritize that. And luckily I put a film on a site that was paying people uh, in Bitcoin to just put content on there. And uh, that actually, I kept that wallet around. And when I went back to look at that wallet, I was pleasantly surprised that it was growing. And I recommended it to, I recommended Bitcoin to another family member. And uh, he flipped it. He flipped it from 400 to 800, and then when it went back down, he just kind of was out. And I was like, no, I read the white paper. There's something going on here. (laughs) It seems like they solved the Byzantine generals problem, you know, and the double spend. How do you know a network can't be trusted? Now to take all that like nerdy cryptography stuff, and let me tell you, like my background is is enough. Computer science and also math. Um, I did applied math, and I had no interest in cryptography. I thought cryptography was sort of like people playing games with math. Um, you know how to make a lock. All these like cute problems, like uh, the boatman and the treasure chest. So then I go, I go for a job in the nineties. This is when we were building dot com one, and uh, you know it was a bank. It was basically uh, you know like a Wall Street kind of job, kind of gig. And they asked that, that question about the boatman and the treasure chest. And I'm like, wow, in finance, they play games too. So I say all that to say this, when I came back around looking at white, but I didn't expect there to be much there. And it was pretty shocking that, uh, you know, that it was a solution. Like it seemed like a solution at the time. The question in my mind was, was the network grow? Is it going to grow enough to one, to remain decentralized, which is what this whole movement is about, decentralization. And uh, and two, would you be able to onboard the masses? You know, originally it was like, oh, everyone can have a bank in their pocket. You know, now it's about you know uh, storing value. The narrative has changed. NFTs are kind of like in a sort of the same place that Bitcoin was maybe in 2014. Um, still very young. Originally, when we were working on NFTs, because I was part of a group of people um, literally up the block for me is where consensus is. So I would get together with these people at meetups or whatever, and we would start thinking about fractional ownership and NFTs was essentially the solution. So the model that we see now working with sort of, you know, visual arts community, metaverse stuff, it's nowhere near where it's going. It's supposed to be a hybrid model where you can take assets in the real world and hybridize them into the virtual world, like sort of storing their value and translating it over. Uh, digitizing it so yeah that's kind of like the general idea about where nft is is supposed to go but where it is right now and i love to jump on clubhouse and listen to those rooms where people just like you know shill and pump all day you know this nft is going to the mac to the moon it's you know it's some anthropomorphic character like you know it's just interesting how committed they are to it and what i do realize is anytime you have a group of people that are really committed to an idea it might take some time, but eventually it comes around. Now, Janie's out of the bottle and it's not going back in.
0: Well, I'll tell you, I'm talking to you on a Asus of Republic or Asus Republic of Gamers laptop that I bought in 2015, and I'm still using it. It's a very usable computer, but I, I cashed out Bitcoin in 2015 to buy this $2,000 computer. It's <laughs> you know, it's are a great math.
1: Yeah, nowadays you don't want to sell any of your bitcoin you just want to get a loan on it
0: yeah exactly it's it's curious to me
1: why the it's just curious to me why the sec has decided to make it inaccessible to people who don't uh you know who aren't accredited like blockfi is not accessible to them anymore celsius isn't accessible anymore i think even coinbase have to scuttle their efforts to uh you know do loans to, to the masses and now you have to be accredited so I think where all this is heading is towards DAOs and doing sort of the loans from from decentralized kind of organizations. That if you have a, any kind of centralized anything, it's subject subject to uh, regulation, and not all regulation is good. Some regulations seems to protect customers, but the majority of the regulation we've seen lately seems to really exclude a whole class of people. In fact, most of the world from financial opportunities.
0: Well, let's. Um... Let's unpack that a little bit. I think maybe there are some people listening who didn't follow all of that. Uh, one of your priorities, and certainly a goal of of decentralized finance, is decentralization. And it is my understanding that the United States government and many other governments, which have central banks, are working to implement what they call a central bank digital currency, which would be a centralized alternative to something like Bitcoin or Dogecoin or you know Ethereum or whatever. And it seems that a lot of the regulation and also a lot of the you know, participation of a cooperative media is meant to instill fear and basically delay the massive adoption of cryptocurrency until the centralized players can get their act together with their competing product. Well, it's interesting.
1: Uh, the CBDC side of it is uh, disturbing. Okay. So they take the narrative of digital store value. And they say, "Oh, we can do the same thing as banks normally do, whether they're centralized banks and non centralized banks. They always decide that they can adopt. I remember for years they would say not Bitcoin, they would say blockchain. Now they've come around to Bitcoin. But what they want to do is sort of like fork your project and implement their own centralized version of it. And that's what CBDCs, CBDCs are. Now, if you think that cash is trash or you think that, Inflation has gotten way ahead of the, the store of value property of, of fiat currencies. Then CBDCs aren't going to solve your problem unless they repeg the CBDCs to a basket of assets, and those assets should be uncorrelated assets. And in that, that basket, it probably needs to be uh, Bitcoin. So uh, what do you because, mean by
0: uncorrelated assets?
1: So what is a stable coin, or what is a what is a store of value? You know, if money has that property of storing value, like what does that mean? Well, it means like if you charted it on the timeline, you know, on a graph and you had time kind of moving along the x-axis, you would want the whole the value of it to remain, its purchasing power to remain pretty much level over whatever period of time. And we currently have never, we don't have that now, we've never had that. So the idea is basically you can take value from different systems of value. And if those two systems aren't, synced up in any way, like A moves and B moves, you know, then uh, they don't have an impact on each other. So if they do move together in sync, we call that correlated. And if they move out of sync, you know, completely out of sync, they call it uncorrelated. So ideally you want your basket of assets like a portfolio to contain different assets that overall on average treat, you know, 50% uncorrelated with the other 50%. And if you do that, then you have a real shot at maintaining a standard value. Because if you think about it, let's say Bitcoin was in that basket. And let's say Bitcoin's rule of 72 is, you know, the, the amount of time it takes to double in value is essentially like its halving period. Let's say that that's true. So it keeps on moving like a hockey stick. And you have some other assets over here that are scarce, like Bitcoin. I guess to some extent, gold is scarce, but not entirely because he inflated at 2.5% a year. But if you take something like land, um, and energy and stuff like that, and you start to put together these different assets that are uncorrelated, um, then you have a, a potential of storing value. Let's say one system is getting a beating, then the other system can, you know, money has moved over to here. What we're seeing right now with this recession is we're seeing nothing like that occurring. Like the Dixie is looking pretty strong. Like the dollar is looking pretty strong. You've got assets that normally, typically what would happen is, you know, when the Fed does their taper tantrum, People move into bonds, but the bonds can't cover the inflation rate, so bonds aren't attractive. Um, housing is going to get hit because it's too expensive for people to buy houses as they raise interest rates. And unless you're holding cash, which is really the only move on the board to scoop in and buy real estate, um, you're gonna you're not going to want to do real estate right now either. So you completely risk off, you know. And so now it seems like all these markets are correlated, and that's what's a little bit nerve wracking. And even when you look at crypto, it's not uncorrelated. It's uh, apparently right now its price is correlated with the NASDAQ. But if you were only look at price, you would say that that's true. I also tend to look at senior rich. A lot of people look at senior rich as being like the base value of, say, Bitcoin, because Bitcoin is mined and it costs money, it costs energy to mine Bitcoin. So there is a basic cost. The cost of minting that money is called senior. And that, I don't think you can mint. Bitcoins for less than like 15 grand right now. Uh, at the upper end is probably 20, and at the lower end is, you know, the really cheap end is probably like around 12. But, you know, general thinking is that 20 is the bottom. So that's your seniorage, that's your cost of mining. And, uh, you know, that gives it a very hard value. That plus scarcity, you know, means that it doesn't derive its value from price action on the NASDAQ. What you do see though is because there's leverage on the market and people are looking at pricing based on looking at various markets, you see a small amount of the total Bitcoin supply is determining its price right now, for better or for worse. So it's an inaccurate picture of the real value potential of it. It's real value potential is its cost of mining and you know the fact that it's constantly becoming more scarce than happening happens you know, every cycle. And that, w- that causes it to double in its value. And all the other cryptos, even though they do different things, you know, some of the more interesting ones do different things and have different solutions. But no one has a harder solution to the Byzantine generals problem, to the idea of like, can you tell if voting system network is actually being truthful? You know, a proof of that. No strategy is better than proof of work, and Bitcoin has definitely nailed that. So, you know, I think everything else sort of derives its value from that. And CBDS, DCs, if they're smart. Will also latch onto it, and you are right. They realize that this genie's out of the bottle, and they're probably going to try to find a way to, you know, print more money and buy more assets that are scarce. And Bitcoin is going to continue to be one of those scarce assets that they do buy, and that's why people need to have strong hands and stop selling. Because if you don't
0: sell your coins, they are going to go up. So there are many things that you mentioned in passing that I'd like to unpack. Uh, you've mentioned the Byzantine generals problem repeatedly. I'd like a quick primer on that, if you would.
1: It's kind of like this uh, problem that's been around for a while, um, thinking about a bunch of generals that are going to attack, say, a fortress, and you need to send a message You're one of the generals, and you need to send a message to all the generals that, you know, we need to do a coordinated attack at this time, right? But there's a game theory to it. Some generals may find that it's more interesting to participate in rushing in, you know, at the front line of the battle. and may hold back and let everyone get destroyed and kind of like walk in afterwards. There may be some other game mechanics, uh, maybe generals plotting against you. So how do you get consensus amongst those generals to know that they all agree to do this thing at this time? And uh bitcoin's proof of work actually accomplishes that because it requires to put something up at stake to put some kind of work into it to essentially make a commitment to the attack and this commitment in bitcoin is you know the double SHA two five six proof of work that it has but it's basically a math proof that someone has committed to a certain amount of resources in this case energy to uh actually playing fairly so it it it's a game mechanic kind of thing where you get people to play it fairly. One of the things you get out of that is you get uh, a solution to double spend. Um, if you want to know if a network potentially has spent, you know, some amount of money multiple times or more than once, then you need to have some kind of rigorous proof that that does not happen. And that happens in the blockchain itself, with the string of blocks the longest chain, like you take the longest chain and that longest chain has had the most work into it, you know, most energy expended to create it. And therefore, it is the most truthful version of that world, uh, provided that you don't have a 51% attack. So that can happen, like 51% of those generals, you know, could attack you or just anything greater than 50%, they can decide to work against you. But in this solution, in Bitcoin solution, that's entirely fair because the network has decided to go in a different direction. It's as if the country decided to vote for a different kind of candidate, you know? So that's fear in the sense that everyone has freely casted their votes. If the work is fair, that means that anyone who can mine uh, is able to mine, is able to participate in figuring out what the truth is. Now, at scale, that may be problematic because some people just have more money than others, right? Um, some people may have more facility to be able to mine at a cheaper cost because wherever they are, they live near, I don't know, let's say the Niagara Falls mining uh, community. They live near Niagara Falls and energy is cheap. But what this does is it creates this sort of like this energy marketplace where miners are constantly moving closer to cheap energy. They then have to be entrepreneurs. They have to go out and raise money and buy some machines. The one challenge to the machine thing, you know, buying ASIC miners has been that most of that chip Manufacturers has been coming out of Taiwan and uh, and to some extent mainland China and so that had, had given them mining superiority. I do believe that it's moving back to the United States and I do believe it's uh, spinning up in places like Texas. So we're going to start seeing you know more and more chips come down the pipe ASIC chips that come down the pipe that are potentially American made which is which is also very exciting for the space um, you know as, as long as we can keep that balance of power fair, then Bitcoin and its, uh, its ethos holds up. But having said that, CBDCs <laughs> have a bigger gorilla in the room. Uh, there was a paper that came out a few years ago called Quantum Money. And uh, not, not to go too far down this tangent, but quantum money is a form of money that you can tell if anyone's interfered with it, if it's ever been, if anyone's tried to uh, hack it or anyone's interact with it because it's a qubit. And anything that happens at the quantum level is, you know, uh, you know, superimposed over the whole network, and it's like this super hard transactional system. But it must be centrally minted, and that's perfect for what their agenda is with uh, with the CBDC. But I personally like decentralization and anything that promotes decentralization. For example, if you were going to attack the Bitcoin network, let's just say you were a nation state and you had, you know, significant power. What you would do is you would cut off the internet. You would literally just slow down the blocks that the Bitcoin network could pass around and drag them to a, a grinding halt. But then companies like Blockstream came along and said, oh, we're going to put up a satellite and we're going to have redundancy in the sky. And so you can't just shut down the Bitcoin network by attacking you know, the land networks and the fiber and stuff like that. There's redundancy. So that's what we need. We, we're really talking about decentralization. And Byzantine generals, uh, the Byzantine generals problem is really a problem about how you, you know, send information in a decentralized way to a bunch of uh, actors in a system and have them all
0: play fairly. So this has been a pretty technical conversation so far. I'd like to open it up and bring in some social and political implications. You know, this is the first episode of the Padverb podcast, but I've been doing the Sea Realm podcast since October of 2006. And that podcast, uh, it wasn't the direction I intended to go in, but it ended up being focused on the potential for a rapid collapse of industrial civilization. And a lot of the audience is um, very interested in that topic. Some of them wouldn't admit to it, but they're pining for a collapse. And there's a strong, uh, strong resentment and distaste for Bitcoin. And part of it is what you've discussed already, that to create one unit of this abstract item, you have to burn about $20,000 worth of energy and you're paying you know, rent for a rack space and you have to buy equipment and it's driving up the cost of graphics processors you know, for, for computers that people would want for video games or graphics applications. Uh, there's, there's this enormous real world physical cost to produce an abstract item. And, you know, the benefit that I think you've already uh, articulated is that that's skin in the game, that the person who is invested in this project is actually investing something real, which is what gives the Bitcoin its value. But what do you say to people who are very upset about, you know, the fact that lots and lots of energy in a time when energy is becoming more scarce and expensive and also, you know, every, every molecule of carbon that gets uh, added to the atmosphere increases you know, our, our troubles in terms of maintaining a stable climate. What do you, what do you say to people who are just really um, antagonistic to the entire cryptocurrency project based on concerns like those?
1: Yeah, it's interesting because uh, they don't level those complaints at uh, YouTube, which burns more energy than the Bitcoin network or, <laughs> um, you know, uh, the banking system. So, uh, so what I say to them is that actually Bitcoin has the uh, efficient use of energy. I do agree that uh, entropy, the second law of dynamics, pretty much governs the entire universe. Uh, Isaac Asimov had a great story about a short story called um, "The Final Question," um, it's about a supercomputer they created and and about its evolution over time and space. But they always kept asking it the same question: What's the uh, solution to the second law of thermodynamics? And at the end of the story, the time time just winds down. And the universe is super cold and super old, and at that point, the machine has all the information it needs. And right at its end, it says, let there be light. And it re-sparks yep. the universe.
0: I, I read that um, story as a teenager.
1: Yep, yep. It's, it's a great story. It's uh, you know important to think about things in terms of energy. But I love the fact that we're finally thinking about money as being energy. Because my broad view is that it's all information. I believe we live in an information-based universe. Because that is a human interpretation of what it all is. Okay? At the end of the day, we understand none of the universe without information. We can't transfer information. We can't communicate. We can't do anything without information, data. Money is data. Money is information. But when money is turned into this game that a small, small people at the top of a pyramid get to control and dominate and determine value for everyone else, I start to scratch my head and say, like, I don't know if that that's, the, that that's the right system. And I'm seeing more and more that people do believe in a couple of things that I think Bitcoin's about. People believe in mathematics slash computers. Um, But they they do believe that mathematics is sort of like this pure thing that it uh, kind of describes the fabric of our universe and has created many meaningful things in our lives. So uh, that is an accepted, uh, let's say call call it a religion or a belief system that people do believe that mathematics is truthful to a degree to a great degree, more truthful than many other things. And secondly, people do believe that energy is important, that we shouldn't squander it away. So the question is to those people, do you think that money should be something that has its value steeped in really hard belief systems, belief systems like mathematics and belief systems like energy? Should hard money be based on energy? Should money be not corruptible by a small group of people who have, have agenda? Which usually is their own personal interest, or should it be a thing that we all own and all get to participate and contribute in a fair way? So that is a question that society has to really ask itself. But my pushback on it is that we have to look at a lot of other systems that burn energy that we take for granted for. You know, for example, how much energy is spent on Instagram? You know, people just you know doing likes, and we already know that YouTube network spends more energy than the Bitcoin network. And uh, isn't that kind of an abstract thing? You know, like. Some would argue that, look, you know, uh, we don't actually need to have all these YouTube videos out there. We don't have to have people. (laughs) Even this video is not that important, you know, but uh, at the end of the day, it is providing value to people's lives. And I think as long as Bitcoin continues to do that, it will continue to grow and it will continue to convince people that it's actually way more efficient um, to have a network, a money network like that, because, you know what, there's the amount of energy that we actually squander every year, let's just say don't use because it costs too much to move it, is much larger than you think it is. And uh, I had done this calculation in the past, but it it turned out that it's a very, the amount of energy that we we don't use, that remains unused every year, is enough to power half of the Bitcoin network. So by Bitcoin miners moving closer to these sources of energy, that uh, are expensive to move around, like, the Niagara Falls scenario or, you know, uh, natural gas, um, you know, you, uh, you are actually seeing a very efficient allocation of energy, and it's going to something that is probably pretty important, which is, uh, which is money, you know, or at least store value. If you don't think Bitcoin's money, at least you would agree that it's a store of value to some you know, number of people, um, similar to gold.
0: So you just referenced something that I recognize, but I'm going to spell it out for the people who might not understand what you're talking about. Uh, you say that Bitcoin miners and other cryptocurrency miners, they, they move physically, they move to places where energy is cheap. And when you say energy that we're not using, and you mentioned natural gas, when fracking for oil, uh, a lot of you know drillers, they don't have any use for the gas. Natural gas is hard to move because it's not very dense. Uh, so they just flare it. They just release it into the atmosphere. They set it on fire, you know, so it's not just methane going up into the atmosphere. But still, yeah. that's, it's, it is adding carbon to the atmosphere when they do that. And it is, um, it is wasting a, an energy source that could be used. So Bitcoin miners move to those fracking locations and they, they set up shops so that they can capture that, that methane flare and uh, use it to power Bitcoin mining. Um, that's not that's anything right. for you to respond to. That was just, you know, for the you know the non-technical no, right. yeah. portion of the audience. Uh, my question to you would be: uh, You've mentioned repeatedly that you think that proof of work is, you know, the real gold standard, as it were, in terms of uh, validation methods. What would be your case against, say, proof of stake? First, what is proof of stake? How is it different from proof of work, and why do you prefer proof of work?
1: Um, well, with proof of stake, it's it falls victim to this, the same problem that we have with all the systems. Then. We've had in terms of, uh, let's just say, attempts to be democratic, systems that are attempting to be democratic and solve the Byzantine generals problem, that the system can't be corrupted. Any proof of stake system can be corrupted. If you can take money and corrupt the system, it will be corrupted at some point. And that's what all of these stake systems are based on. They're all validated node systems, and uh, they're actually quite centralized if you look at most of them. Whereas proof of work requires you to actually do some effort and you can measure that effort um, in terms of energy. And uh, you really can't. There's no way around it. There's no hack. You can't go to 10 other validators and say, hey, uh, vote with me this way in this governance protocol and I'll make it all worth your while. You can't set up all these little cabals. In fact, we don't even know what what the serious edge cases are, the failure points are for very large validated networks. <laughs> but we're about to see them very soon as uh, Ethereum moves to ETH 2.0. Note that they've they've consistently pushed back their release dates because um, they're actually pretty good at doing their own research. And you know, I'm sure they've, they've done enough uh, experimentation to realize that there are potential flaws and edge cases that they didn't consider. And so they're trying to cross their T's and dot their I's. Now, it's, it's very interesting that uh, you know so many people have gravitated towards the so-called green coins which aren't coins at all the tokens that people have gravitated towards that because of the messaging around greenness but the word of caution is that i guess to some extent it's good that they have all those every token that you can possibly imagine has a peer with bitcoin because at least by having that peer there is some level of value of that token that's pegged against Bitcoin. The volatility on it might be quite great, though. But Bitcoin is a real hard store of money. And all of these other protocols know that. You could go to any one of these chains, any one of these protocols, and they could say tell you how green they are. But at the end of the day, ask them if they believe in Bitcoin. They'll tell you they do. I actually do operate a chain that does use energy. I operate the uh, packet network. The PKT network was designed to sort of let this kind of information, freedom of information, you know, uh, uh, mission uh, really sort of blossom in a decentralized way going forward. We realized the Internet was super centralized, that if there were any flaws or hacks to any of these crypto systems, it would come from attacks on the Internet and that we needed to have an Internet that was decentralized. Um, We had a protocol that was very successful in terms of the mesh network world. For those of you who don't know what mesh nodes are, mesh nodes are when, uh, you know, a group uh, or a community comes together and they share their internet access. Kind of think about it like a, um, a coffee shop. You go down to your local coffee shop and you get some Wi-Fi sharing. I imagine there was a whole neighborhood of people where some people, you know, had internet access and shared that access with others. So it brought down the cost of actually having internet for everyone because, you know, it was the average cost between the people who had internet and the people who didn't. Now to incentivize that whole process, like why would I share my internet if I don't own a coffee shop and you're not coming there to buy a coffee? Uh, we created a, a sort of a more of a capitalist model on top of it where you mine your internet bandwidth and you mine it and uh, you can sell it to the marketplace and then you can pay for your internet. So we have over 20,000 nodes all across the world that mine this bandwidth hard, we call it bandwidth hard proof of work Essentially, the chain is a fork of Bitcoin. Um, It uses Lightning nodes um, to do settlements, to do bandwidth payment transactions. And bandwidth is a a commodity on this network. It's a bandwidth marketplace. And uh, where we're different from Bitcoin is we don't spend as much energy because we, we require you to use your internet bandwidth and you have to download a lot of information in order to build this proof of work. But at the same time, we do believe that proof of work is the best solution to having a fear of voting system. And uh, I fast forward that to what I'm doing right now with DAOs, with decentralized autonomous organizations, where they're basically, you can think of them as like mini nations or mini companies, but there are companies that, that don't have that pyramidical structure. they are co- companies that are, it's more like a nation where everyone has a vote. How do I know there's not going to be fake votes in that system? How do I know that an election is not going to be fake? In computer science, they call it a civil, civil attack. You can make a bunch of, you know, sock puppet nodes and pretend to be real people and fool the network. Well, it turns out the only solution that is the Byzantine generals problem yet again, and uh, proof of work is it. So you know that that that's why I'm a big believer in proof of work over proof of
0: stake. You are listening to the Padverb Podcast. I'm your host KMO. I'm speaking with Vishnu Sisahai. We're talking about cryptocurrencies, uh, Bitcoin in particular. And proof of work versus proof of stake and similar topics. Earlier, I had um, I had outlined some objections that I hear from people to Bitcoin and cryptocurrency generally based on its energy usage. But there's also another current of objection. and it comes uh, mostly from the cultural left, not necessarily the political left, but you know, the, the cultural sort of left-leaning professional managerial class who really dislike the idea of decentralization. Uh, Their their position is that if there isn't a central authority controlling people, people are terrible and they will do terrible things. So, for example, right now, people in this class are very, very upset that Elon Musk has purchased Twitter. They say that he's going to let people do anything they want. And what people want to do is just horrible, racist, Nazi, you know, medical disinformation, all all of this stuff is you just can't trust people to behave properly without a strong, wise, guiding central authority, making sure that they do behave properly. Uh, What would be your response to that?
1: So um, I have a question. I mean, you say strong, wise, centralized authority. How do we define what that is? I mean, I come from a community, particularly the African-American community, Who's been sort of like on the the bad side of that supposed strong, wise, centralized authority that told us, uh, you know, that we couldn't we couldn't use the same bathrooms, you know, and that that was okay, or you know, we didn't have the same voting rights, or we didn't have the same ability to 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 get loans. Who determines that, you know? And over time, all that's changed. You know, um, look at what we're seeing happening now with with abortion rights, you know, um, swinging back and forth. Um, but do you know, we're going to let some centralized authority tell you what you can do with your body. It was the same thing with the vaccine, you know, like, uh, you know, the vaccine is great. That was, that was, that was, that was a marvel of, of technology really. And, uh, and at the same time, the political environment didn't have any room for any gray areas. It was just black or white you have to do it. Everybody's got to get the vaccine and, you know, no questions about it. If you don't, you're a bad person and whatever happens to you happens to you. This sort of, like, bipolar way of thinking, like, it's either black or white, you know, doesn't leave any area for debate, conversation, discussion about what actually makes sense and what we do agree. It's funny because I come from probably the exact sector of people that give the most pushback, and many of those people are my peers, and I've had that discussion with them. Well, when you actually just sit down and you have a beer with somebody and you and you have a discussion about kind of, like, you know... What do you think the problems are in our society today? We can pretty much all agree on what the problems are. We can come to some consensus on that. Then when it comes down to solutions, you know, that's subject to discussion. So I think that generally speaking, there are merits to both sides of that argument. But it's in a case by case scenario. Any kind of like fell swoop decision that is broad and sweeping and, you know, wipes out the voice of an entire group of people on one side or the other is bad. I don't like what they what they're saying, you know? I don't like everything that everybody says, you know? Maybe my skin is thin in certain areas too. Yeah. What what I need to do is I need to pull myself out of that environment. Okay? Now, the criticism about billionaires owning communication platforms, that's very valid, but that's been going on since the advent <laughs> of the printing press. That's what they do. You know, they have a very loud megaphone. Once they well, yeah, have everything else, person. they get a megaphone, yeah. you know? So I think the criticism is valid, but I am glad that we live in a time and a place where people can have criticisms and those criticisms can bubble up. I just think there should be a conversation after the criticism. So yeah, criticize and then let's like have a conversation about what could be the solutions to the problem. But uh, I actually feel like I take a aside one, one way or the other I'm on the side right now, like I, I just wrote some, some code that you know, I'm kind of ambivalent about, I really am. Like on one side, I can see how it could be just like fire. Like it could be used to cook your food. It could be used to burn, burn, burn someone. And, and that's what technology is. But technology, technology's goal should be to promote something in as fair and objective and as pure a way as you can possibly model and let people decide, particularly with these technologies that have social impact, let society determine how they want to use it. So I wonder if Elon is going to go in that direction or not. You know, it wasn't just him that bought it, you know, it was like him and a bunch of other technocrats. So, um, I mean, I think Ellison might be on that. I know CZ from Binance has put in like 500 million. So I think he has a bunch of different uh, uh, like technocrat billionaires that are on board and some of which don't you know, necessarily, I don't think, have, have the same politics that he does. So it'll be interesting to see what happens there. But um, if people feel bad about Twitter, I think that's why decentralization is important. I think they need to go and spin up their own networks. I think we should stop relying on these centralized clouds and these centralized services that own all your data and resell your data. And then some billionaire comes along and snatches it from under you. and changes everything. Like, like what is... What is your answer to that? Like, do you go and create your own global village? You know, do you do it in the metaverse? Do you create your own platform? Do you do it in, that's this, this thing right now that exists kind of on the underground called the Fed, Fediverse, where they're basically like Twitter's popping up everywhere. You know, anyone can pop up with Twitter now. You know, It's called the Fediverse. And it's a bunch of these like independent, decentralized communication servers where people can have the same kind of chats and discussions that they have and all the other social media platforms, except that you can't be the platform. I mean, someone can kick you off their specific Fediverse, but you can always just go start your own. And it's very similar to like BitTorrent, where you have these lists of different Fediverses. So, you know, people pull in these lists and, you know, maybe you got kicked off of one person's Fediverse, but you're in a whole bunch of others. So in that in that sense, too, as long as someone's interested in what you have to say, you still have a platform.
0: So Fediverse is a new piece of vocabulary for me. How do you spell it? S-E-D-I-V-E-R-S-E. I will be educating myself on that as soon as we're off the call. (laughs) So uh, speaking of Elon Musk, were it not for SpaceX, the United States would be reliant on Russia to put personnel onto the International Space Station. And things aren't so congenial with Russia right now. So I'm very excited about the work that Elon Musk is doing to bring down launch costs, to engineer reusable space vehicles. Uh, I'm ambivalent about colonizing Mars, but all the things that he has to do to make that possible are things that I want to see done.
1: Right.
0: Um, I would just open up the conversation to you to, you know, what is your your disposition on private space development? I love
1: it. I mean, it's, it's an engineer's wet dream. You're gonna tell me that I can build my own consumer grade rocket, essentially kind of like an ICBM, with a solid uh, fuel propellant and launch it in a parking lot and send up a CubeSat that's like four inches by four inches. And I now have a communication network in the sky right alongside the HughesNet. I think that's amazing. Or I can hitch a ride with Elon, with a uh, with Falcon, and, uh, and, and send, send my code up into space. You know, that's that's an incredible opportunity that people have never had before. Um, is it more important than everything going on, on the ground? No way. But I do think that from a technology point, from an engineering standpoint, to see this happen, to see like this marketplace of, of really just you know, the engineers with a will to do something um, just spring up and have, you know, someone like, I'm very torn on Elon. Like, half the time, I think he's just hilarious, you know. And he's like, oh, next I'm going to buy Coca-Cola and put the Coke back in. I mean, half the time, it's like he's just trolling the world. <laughs> and the other half of the time, he's doing, like, really cool projects that we were, you know, we were probably all read the same reading material as kids, Omni Magazine and all this stuff. And uh, I remember I had a book when I was a kid about, you know, the world of tomorrow and, uh, you know, how we were going to have, like, you know, commercial-grade rockets. And uh, what was the other one? I
0: forget, Space cars, Tethers.
1: Dude. Space tethers and, <laughs> and I was like, this is awesome. this is the future that I want to build you know that's the whole reason to go into into becoming a becoming a maker, or an engineer or whatever. Um, it's do cool stuff like that. So I totally get it and he is actually very good for uh, he's very he's a very good role model for a lot of people to tell you the truth. I'll give him that. I don't agree with a lot of his philosophies on, on various things, particularly when it comes to AI and uh, and Neuralink like I did understand that like I, I agree I, I was literally I signed on to that old petition you know uh, people are, it was a petition for I guess people who are in computer science and specifically machine learning you know to do more ethical machine learning because <laughs> I, I believe in that I believe the data is skewed and all that stuff but um, Elon then makes a pivot and decides we have to be cyborgs and that's a solution to the problem. it just sounds like something right out of a sci-fi now like, so I at what point will you keep replacing your organic parts with computer parts? Do you hit the transition point? Like, do we even have a name for that transition point? You know, like that the singularity. I guess it's a singularity within the individual, you know, like, OK, now you're an AI. <laughs> you're a bore. So some of the stuff that he does, I feel like he's just trolling the world. The other stuff that he does is right out of the, everything in sci-fi that we've ever read and loved. And in general, he's good. He's a a good role model for stuff like that. Now, in politics, uh, I don't know what his political bend is. I don't know um, if he is a racist. I can tell you one thing that I know that all the stuff that went down in the Tesla in the Tesla factories did, in fact, actually happen. And, um, you know, it's just a bad culture there. And hopefully they clean up the culture there. Um, But that's not to say that we don't have, you know, that that kind of thing doesn't exist in companies all across America because I've had it happen to me. So uh, he's not that's not necessarily his fault. That's the corporate culture. But it is his responsibility to clean up the corporate culture. Uh,
0: I think what you're referring to, there was a African-American employee at Tesla who successfully sued, you know, for the use of racial slurs uh, on the factory floor. But this was not the, you know, the the white collar portion of the uh, the employee base. This was. African American and No, I know what it, know, it is. He doesn't workers. care about
1: he doesn't care about the line workers. It's all happened on the line.
0: Right. He's he's about for, look, for the benefit they're, of the they're,
1: they're, they're gonna get replaced by robots. So he's not yeah. gonna he's not gonna think really hard about the so he's gonna be like the solution is robots. Replace humans with robots, they can't get along. Robots. Yeah, man, nope. a dog and a machine, the dog is there to keep the man off the machine, that kind of thing. <laughs>
0: Uh, the topic of technological unemployment is one that is of great interest to me. I was very excited cool. to see Andrew Yang in the last presidential contest actually bringing up that topic and also the, the possibility of universal basic income in uh, a political environment where both of those topics were just not on anybody's radar. And then in a few short weeks, you know, particularly as a result of his uh, debate stage performances everybody was talking about it and then you know within a few months and because of covid uh we had not full-on ubi because ubi is something that provides support something you can depend on and you know the stimulus checks were were certainly not that you know you you didn't know how many you were going to get you didn't know how much they would be it was very sort of the largesse from the emperor but uh still it was something that was unthinkable just a few months before Uh, i wonder you know what your thoughts are on the topic of uh you know, people losing jobs to automation.
1: Yeah, uh, they're absolutely going to lose jobs to automation. Um, you know, the first big round of people who lose jobs are going to be people in any industry that uh, uses transportation. Um, autonomous vehicles are here. They're not going anywhere. Their utility function is going go to go through the roof, and it's just going to replace like 40%, 40% forty of the, percent of the workforce. Um, the amount of time it's going to take, you know, to do that, maybe 25, 30 years, I would, I would guess that, but it's a, it's a real thing. And probably by the end of this century, you know, there'll be significant impact on the workforce that's irreversible. And uh, so the thing is, is that okay? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, human beings need work in you know, order to feel like their life has meaning and purpose, but we've spent a lot of time working to just kind of like survive, you know, um, at least, at least since we moved from, well, Probably even in the agronomy days, but certainly since we've moved to the sort of like the manufacturing and now the digital age, you know, uh, many people, the work that they're doing is in their life's calling and they don't have a clear path to get there because they kind of just get caught up in the pattern of just working and paying bills. So let's say machines come along now, they don't even have that job. Well, the the thing is idle hands, as they always say, you can't, can't have people idle for too long because... It's gonna lead, it's probably gonna to lead to some kind of sociological implosion. So what are people gonna do, what are people gonna do with their time? Are they gonna do some of the stuff that we're doing now? We spend a lot of time doing things that we never would have thought had value, like posting pictures on Instagram or, you know, any number of different virtual things that we do right now. We spend so much of our lives in this world of the web that I can only see us immersing ourselves more into that. So uh, UBI, okay, so a couple of ways you could do it. Look, use the example of the, of the COVID, the last two years of COVID, and them sort of printing money and maybe even doing a test case of UBI and, and look at its impact on inflation and now they got to try to wrangle the economy back in the shade. They haven't figured out economically speaking exactly how to do that, how to do, how to do a UBI. You do a UBI, it's definitely going to cause some inflation because you're printing money. You have to inflate the currency to do that. But we're moving to a point where the dollar is cash is trash. The dollar's failure seems inevitable. And Bretton Woods has to probably come together and figure out where where to store value next. What's going to be the next currency? Let's say it's CBDCs. All right. One of the advantages of CBDCs is that you're running on a crypto like payment rail. That is to say like the stack that we move money around on right now from a technological standpoint, um, the SWIFT network. It hasn't evolved since the 70s. Um, and, you uh, know, it's, it's Bank of America's brainchild, by the way, even worse. But it hasn't really evolved. And it has been to literally just now, since the ACH machine switched over to the Lightning nodes, that we've had any new technology implemented in the uh, in the payments transactional systems of the world. So what, what these banks have realized is that faster more, uh, you know, better encrypted ways of moving money around. And so the rails that power CBDC are crypto-like, but make no bones about it, they will be centralized. So I think what continues to happen is that, you know, they move more towards CBDCs, and then they have the ability to create velocity capital. I don't know if they will. That's an open problem. No society has ever really had velocity capital, capital that gets to people where they need a, You need a loan, but you don't have, you know, a 750, and uh, but you have a business that runs every day. Like maybe you have a mom and pop shop of some kind. You know, many parts of the world, in fact, most of the you know, there's lots of entrepreneurship going and people setting up mom and pop shops on a corner selling fruit that they grew in the backyard. You know, completely unbanked people, but they're not on any rails of any kind. You know, and and they're unbanked and they're not getting velocity capital and they don't have access to loans. But theoretically, if you have a CBDC and you have an app that anyone can have, because a lot of people have phones, and let's say that app just runs on any phone, um, then they can have a wallet. And, they, you know, if you want to send out checks, you don't have to send those checks out and try to manage that flow in any, in any uh, like convoluted manner. You can just simply push a button or have a, have a mechanism that repeats at a certain time, and everybody's digital wallet gets plussed up. So it's a very easy system for them to manage from a delivery mechanism. And then you can see how money's being allocated and you can analyze how money's moving and can make some calculations and some predictions. And maybe you have some more control over the levers of the economies. So that's what they're looking at doing. Of course they're gonna do a UBI off that off that system, and of course they're gonna send it directly to people because it's more manageable that way. That's the direction they're heading. But then what are people going to do? How are they going to find their meaning in life? Well, you got these models in crypto like play to earn. So you play this game and then you're earning this crypto. There could be many such models. Uh, sharing parts of your internet bandwidth, sharing your CPU, sharing your memory. So you have these computer resources in your and you're just making your money while you sleep. Uh, or maybe you're in this metaverse realm and you're doing something there. Maybe your job is partially virtual. There's going to be new jobs, but it's going to take time to transition everyone. Just like the younger generation coming up, they pretty much understand tokenization. They pretty much understand the idea of like tokens on a on a network because they play games. But the older crowds, like you know, even my generation, like they think that money has to come from a centralized, you know, uh, issuer and um, I guess backed up by guns and I don't know a bunch of other stuff. That they say they don't believe in, which is, uh, they say they don't believe in violence and stuff like that, but backed up by guns, you know, and uh, military bases in 153 countries in a world of 194, 95, and uh, there to kind of like move the dollar, they don't have a problem with that. Seems a little inconsistent
0: we are nearing the end of our hour together. And uh, oh, awesome. I can tell we have a lot more to talk about. So <laughs> yeah. I'd like to talk to you again sometime. But for the final question, um, I could tell just reading your, your CV and looking at the dates when you graduated with different degrees that you are like me, a Gen Xer. Yep. And, you know, in the 1980s, uh, we had kind of this weird dichotomy in that, we were told that we could die at any minute from nuclear war. But at the same time, we were told that if we made it like to the 20 teens or so, we'd have flying cars or at least flying, you know, hoverboards like in uh, Back to the Future Part Two. Um, Back to the Future Part Two, Blade Runner. These are movies that are now set in the past. You know, Blade Runner takes place in 2019. Back right. to the Future, the, the future right. Elements from 2015. The future that we've gotten is certainly not the one that we were expecting in the 80s. Uh, what are your thoughts on the future that we were promised versus the one that materialized?
1: Well, I think the future that we were promised, um, some of it is materialized. Like you said, hoverboards. I mean, they do have hoverboards. <laughs> you just hover They're over cold them. hoverboards. They don't <laughs> hover them. No, the ones that people roll around on, the ones that kind of float on water. Have you seen those? They're really cool.
0: Oh, yeah. Um, I've also seen the ones that include um, propulsors too, like from your hands. Good. It's kind of like Iron Man's propulsion system. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Those are really cool. I love those. I love but
1: those, those
0: are toys for yeah. the rich. Those are not yeah, toys for, for everyday rich. life.
1: Yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, yeah, a lot of the stuff that uh, I mean, I do think they're prototypes, um, but we have taken the cue from sci-fi. So I think sci-fi never really gets the timing right. I mean, 1984 didn't actually happen, but maybe it did we didn't know about it but um the time the dates it's always hard to like put a date on it that's almost like a doomsday call you know like oh on this day the world will be destroyed let's all get ready so yeah putting dates on things are really hard but are we moving towards that future i think we're still in, on the trajectory for something like that there's uh, certainly a possibility that at least parts of blade runner are true you know there's certainly a possibility for uh I don't know I'm necessarily about androids running around killing other androids, but, um, you know, the robotics is certainly moving quite rapidly. Artificial intelligence is moving more rapidly than anyone expected. And uh, it does seem like a form of dystopia. Ready Player One is sort of the, the rewrite and the upgrade on that. They took that and they, they took, like, Blade Runner and mixed it with a little bit of Snow Crash and made it lighter and brighter and stuck it in the game world. So... Chances are, I mean, we won't get that Ready Player One metaverse, but we might have some version of it. We might have like the AR world where you walk around and there's information popping up. It might be a little bit more like Black Mirror.
0: You know, I noticed Black Mirror isn't being produced anymore. (laughs) And I wonder if it's because the real world seems to overrun its storylines almost immediately.
1: Yeah, they're too busy working on the stuff from that. (laughs) They're working on those systems.
0: (laughs) Well, Vishnu, I have enjoyed our conversation and I would like to thank you for being the guest on this first episode of the Padverb podcast.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: My pleasure. Stay well. Well, that brings us to the end of this first installment of the Padverb podcast. Again, my guest was Vishnu Sisahai. And if you liked what you heard here and you'd like to hear more from Vishnu, I would suggest that you check out his Padverb account, It has links to all of his other podcast appearances. So what did you think of the content? Would you like to hear more on topics related to cryptocurrency, emerging technology, new space? Or do you think there are other avenues that I should explore? I would invite you to share not only your feedback, but also your suggestions for future guests and topics. Eventually, you'll be able to leave comments on the podcast, but for now, I think the best way for you to send me your suggestions is via email. My email address is KMO at Padverb.com. So that's KMO, as in Kilo, Mike, October, at Padverb.com. Papa, Alpha, Delta, Victor, Echo, Romeo, Bravo, dot com. All right. Thanks for listening, and I will talk to you again soon. Take care.